This week on The Function Room, Once Upon a Prime with Sarah Hart. Normally I try and come up with an apt pun for the title, but I couldn't possibly come up with anything better than the title of my guest Sarah Hart's book. She has written Once Upon a Prime, a very enjoyable read and listen about the many links between maths and literature and myth and poetry. We talk about why giants as we know them can't exist, the 19th century obsession with statistics, the maths of Ulysses and Moby Dick and taking an idea for a walk. My name is Sarah Hart. I'm a professor of mathematics and I'm interested in the links between mathematics and literature and culture more broadly. And you're more than just interested in those links because you've put your time where your mouth is and written <laughs> a book uh, which I've really enjoyed reading. Uh, it is Once Upon a Prime. Great title, by the way, as a comedian who likes Thank puns. You. Uh, I would be of the view that you would take the rest of the day off once you come <laughs> up with a good title for your book. Were you pleased with that to start with? Yes, very pleased. And, you know, then you sort of think, oh, well, is this being too frivolous? But no, because, of course, it's fun and, and it's kind of exhibits the joy we all take in making connections and making yeah. a, you know, a pun is just an example of that. And so, yeah, I can I can show you the, the cover of it um, and it's got on it. We had fun uh, with the cover because it references lots of things. So there's, so Once Upon a Prime is, is the title and the picture um, with a whale's tail sort of diving into the sea, that brings Moby Dick to mind, it's supposed to. And the reason for that is because uh, there are lots of mathematical metaphors and allusions in, in Moby Dick and in Herman Melville's writing, which we explore some of in the book, but surrounding, I don't know if you can see, but surrounding uh, in, in the kind of the sky above the ocean there, there are lots of mathematical symbols and expressions and equations and things. And every single one of those, um, there's something in literature that relates yeah. to it. You've got, you've got pi or the beginning of pi and you've got Pythagoras' theorem and infinity and then some numbers and 42 is in there. And then my favorite one is there's this equation 4x equals 15y. And so kind of and that fun, sounds that sounds manageable as equations yeah, go. Manageable equation. Yeah. The fun thing about that is I think we'd make a great pub quiz question. Which classic author invented this equation? And uh, spoiler alert, but I'll tell you it's Tolstoy yeah. who invented this equation when he was talking about how armies are fighting and, and he drops it into the middle of war and peace and he just puts it in there and he has this discussion about it and he talks about, you know, momentum and and fighting forces of armies and it's just like what you know it's so unexpected to just see that in there but you know like many authors of particularly in the 19th century it was just one of the things you have in your your intellectual armory you can talk yeah. about mathematics and you can talk about other things it wasn't viewed then as I don't think as being something weird and different as nowadays it tends to be and that's one of my kind of things that I try and, and talk about in the book and, and everything I do really, that there's no reason for mathematics to be put in this box of, well, you know, if you see someone and meet someone and you tell them about that you like mathematics, they're like, oh, it was my yeah. work at school. Oh, you, you must be a weirdo. And you say, well, no, no, uh, yeah. no. It's metaphorically speaking, like you've just said, I like carrying a fish in my pocket and then you take it out. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> they react yeah. as if it's and 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 it's yeah. fresh, but they think it smells basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I see. How how curious of you to. So I try and I try and spread the word that actually mathematics 
it, it, it wasn't historically thought of as being unusual or different. It was part of part of what an educated person would know. And it wouldn't be weird to maybe think about mathematics a bit, do a bit of mathematics in your spare time. Um, you know, there's this wonderful fact that there was a president of the United States who, for fun in his spare time, came up with a new different proof of Pythagoras' theorem. And, you know, you can't imagine Donald Trump doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you can't that. imagine any any other president, regardless no. of intellect or image, doing it, because to do so would be seen as this elite pursuit and yeah. aloof from the, the needs of the people. Yet, presumably, this president, when they were doing it, were no more or no less removed from whatever poverty was happening at the time. But it was it was it was an OK thing to do, like yeah. like it would be to golf now or something. Yeah. It was an everyman an everyman pursuit. Yeah. Or, or playing music. And this is, you know, we, we everybody from every age, we, we sing songs, we, we make music. We bang drums and things and, and no one says, oh, you can't do that because you're not good enough at it. You know, if yeah. you're not going to be a concert pianist, you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't be singing songs. But somehow in mathematics, there's this weird thing that, you know, either you're a brilliant genius or it's not for you. And that, yeah. that just isn't the case. So you can dabble, you can play with it just like you can with music or, or art or anything like that. You could do that with mathematics, but it seems that that isn't, that isn't what tends to happen. So I want people to play. <laughs> just yeah. add another thing to play with. It's just, just another fun thing that you can explore. Yeah, and pardon the turn of phrase, you don't have to go on X Factor to show off your <laughs> maths. You just, yeah. uh, you, it, as as a hobby, and I suppose people do it anyway with things like Sudoku and yeah. that, but it's perhaps couched in terms of, oh, it's just numbers and Sudoku is just adding or whatever. In, yes. You know, yeah. it's easier to, say that that's a, a, a general pursuit. Uh, you, presumably, you gave a little clue as to why you wrote the book there, but just to say, uh, what was the process of, as a professor of mathematics, where was there a point at which the urge to write the book spilled over into action? <laughs> well, yes, I think I've always... I've always loved reading books from the age of tiny, tiny little Sarah, loved reading, was a voracious reader, and that was part of you know, my personality. I also was good at mathematics from an early age. I didn't know that what I was good at was called mathematics. You know, I like making patterns. And it became clear later on that <laughs> that made me good at maths. So I, you know, I loved these things as a kid and didn't see any kind of you know disconnect. But then obviously as you get older and, and if I was going to be a mathematician, I was sort of told, right, you're in the science bit, <laughs> you know, which I, I love science. I have no problem with that. But somehow the, 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 the love of literature and words and language, I sort of had to make a choice. So I felt that I had to make a choice. And it was much later I realized, no, that was a false, that was a false choice. You don't have to choose. And as I, when I became a lecturer and started, you know, giving lectures at university and then you produce lecture notes to go with them. And I would, I loved making these lecture notes. I loved, I would, you know, produce far more than I needed to do. And I'd have these little excursions into the history of mathematics and I'd write little extra bits for the students far beyond anything you actually had to need to do to pass the exam. And so I, I think that love of writing was seeping out into yeah. what I was doing, you know, without my properly being aware of it. 
And then, so in 2020, something happened, which was that I uh, became what's called the Gresham Professor of Geometry, which is this one of these weird uh, old organizations, institutions. It was started in 1597, Gresham College, by uh, well, in the will of this uh, Elizabethan financier, Thomas Gresham. And he left in his will provision for, uh, there were seven professorships in, in kind of seven key things at the time. So geometry was one, now means all of maths, astronomy, music, uh, rhetoric, law. There were seven in total. And the idea was that these would be professors who would give public lectures free to the people of London. So anyone who wanted to learn could come free and learn. So it's kind of, you know, knowledge is wonderful, we should spread it. And they're still going like 420, 30 yeah. years later. So I I got this, this job and because of that, part of that, I give these public lectures and I can talk about anything I like, you know, within reason, anything mathematical I like. And so I could just follow to my heart's content all these rabbit holes that were waiting for me over the years. So I talk about music and I talk about literature and art and the ways that maths links with all of these things. And with that, you write, um, you prepare sort of a bit of uh, extra reading for the audience. So I was producing all these little nice little essays and coming out of that, uh, the New York Times picked up on this because uh, I'm the first woman to do this. So you walked into a hall surrounded by paintings of austere, bewhiskered <laughs> men yeah. staring, staring yeah. down at you and judging your innate flightiness <laughs> arriving yeah. in. Yes. What's this flippity gibbet doing in here? Yeah. But yeah, so in its sort of 400 and whatever years, I'm the first woman to be the Gresham Professor of Geometry. And obviously that's sort of interesting to people. So the New York Times did a profile and it was kind of like, you know, Robert Hooke did this, so-and-so did this, and here you are. Uh, and so it's you know, an exciting thing. And following that profile, basically, lots of publishers got in touch and said, hey, okay. book. And I yes. went from <laughs> a sort of, oh my goodness, one day, wouldn't it be amazing if I could one day write a book to, oh, yeah. I'm writing a book. Ah. So then it all poured out of me, which was great. Very good. So you achieved that authorly fantasy, presumably of sitting, uh, gazing out a window into <laughs> a garden, writing with exquisite longhand. Uh, finally, <laughs> your, your mind finally freed uh, of the need of uh, of e equations. And yet you start writing about equations. So it's... Well, it's, <laughs> well, it's all part of the same yeah. thing, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. all the, the, the excitement that I feel about that pattern spotting and they look there are connections making yeah. connections and saying oh, wow you know this this form of poetry links to this bit of mathematics and it's so fascinating so yeah doing that was I mean, oh yes it's hard work but it, it was so so enjoyable and I think it actually really helped me in those 2021 where we were still having lockdowns and the kids would be at home and everything was a bit chaotic and confusing and, and stressful but I could disappear into my little room and just think about, you know, the glorious way that Herman Melville talks about cycloids or whatever it is, and yeah. just fall into that for a few hours and then go back and face the, oh, where's the homework and, you know, stuff, <laughs> the logistics yeah. of life, which, which, you know, were tough for everybody. So what I really liked about the book, so I listened to the book and well done on your audiobook as an audiobook debutante myself. I enjoyed it and I found it a tour of literature in like it, it, it opened up 
books that I hadn't would have considered reading and maybe I might give them a go like I have a copy of Ulysses I have a copy of Tristram Shandy they look great on the shelf <laughs> with yes. their penguin classics orange or orange spines <laughs> yes. um, but but it illustrated for me that it's great when you have a way into literature like a prism to look at a book like War and Peace doesn't mean I'm going to read all of it but just Matt's as an access point hadn't yeah. occurred to me before. Did you find that yourself? Yeah, no, so I particularly enjoyed where, exactly as you say, it's unexpected. So I, I mostly avoided writing about science fiction, for example, yeah. because not that I have anything against science fiction, I love science fiction, but that you might say, you might sort of expect there, there might be mathematical references, you know, they, they resolve the quantum flux or whatever you know yeah. to, to, to advance the plot so, they, they wear their maths heavy on their sleeves <laughs> yes yes yeah. and it, they, they're using it to improve the plausibility of whatever else is happening or you know there have been really entertaining uh, books or articles written about the mathematics behind you know what could make some invented work like the disc world or something um you know what would that be like what the implications for for physics so that it's interesting, but to some extent expected. And so what I really wanted to talk about was the places where, yes, you think, what, what, where would the mathematics be in, yeah, in Ulysses, which we think of as being, you know, this stream of consciousness thing. If you're talking about structure, like how could there be structure in that? It's the opposite of structure, but actually, no, it's there. And it's really, there's quite a bit of mathematics in there that he enjoys playing with James Joyce. So yeah, those unexpected links are my favorite kind. Yeah. Where you read fiction where maths is, say, interlaced, are they showing off or is it a device to help them? What do, what do you get from reading them? What do you think they're up to in some of these books? So I think that, you know, maybe it's a result of the ones I picked out. I, I don't think in a lot of the books I talk about that they're showing off. I think it's just kind of an artifact of them being interested themselves. Yeah. So George Eliot is one of the authors I talk about. She really, really loved mathematics. And because she was interested in it, she would read about it. She would meet, you know, mathematicians and scientists. She wrote in her notebooks, lots of little interesting facts that she found out. She went to geometry lectures. All of those things kind of feed into the fact that the things that make her interested, some of those are mathematical. So when she's reaching for you know, an, an image or a metaphor, it, it's more likely to be mathematical because that's just sort of what's the furniture of her brain involves mathematical ideas. So she's got these, you know, her writing, there's a lot of uh, kind of interplay between statistical chance, probability, fate, you know, gambling, all of that. Uh, just to check, within which novels then does she reference those? So, I mean, the, the the biggest amount of references would be in Daniel Deronda, which it begins, you know, at a roulette table. Yeah. And there's there are all these ups and downs in the lives of the characters. Uh, Daniel Deronda himself studies mathematics at Cambridge, but um, it's broader than that. So the whole novel has gambling, ups and downs, good luck, bad luck. And you could even think of it, I don't want to go too much of a stretch, but there's this thing in, in probability theory called the gambler's fallacy, which is where, you know, when you know something is a 50-50 chance, 
if it's if it's come up heads five times in a row, you're thinking, well, we're due for it to be tails. And so yeah. you think it somehow you, it feels more likely that the yeah. next throw will be tails. But of course, it's it's not. Coin doesn't have a memory. It'll be a 50-50 again. So that fallacy that that people think I'm, I'm overdue to get you know the good luck, that is kind of explored on a bigger scale in this novel because the the, the main character, one of the characters, uh, Gwendolyn Harleth, you know, she has ups and downs. And you might be thinking, well, it'll all come right again by the end. But it kind of doesn't. You know, her yeah. story, <laughs> she's, she's sort she of... Gets, she gets a sixth a, yeah. a head for the sixth time in a row. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that is kind of, you know, the whole novel is sort of an example of not to make that mistake. And would that have been a preoccupation, particularly in the 19th century? Because there are lots of dissolute gamblers turn up. <laughs> in in the the canon of the 19th century aren't there it's it's a it's a real strong plot device various yeah. you know feckless second sons of earls yeah. be found yes. at gambling tables and yes. and people would be wondering why did i not win or whatever so so for george Eliot, putting some sort of structure on that was an expression of her interest at the time yeah yeah absolutely and and you know the the ideas i mean statistics itself and probability were really just coming into being as mathematical things are areas of study so people have been gambling but they started to think about um can we really calculate what's going on you know, can we predict if a game is interrupted how could we mathematically work out you know who should get what share of the winnings but in the 19th century those thoughts about probability started to come into kind of studying statistics about people about populations yeah and so statistics, that word comes from kind of studying the state. It's got the same root. And there was this kind of influx of suddenly people were publishing books called things like moral, moral statistics, which is where, you know, they look at crime rates and they look at um, divorce and, and murder rates and things and are, and are kind of measuring these as a quality of society. Yeah. And that caused a lot of upset for, in people. They didn't think... You could really, you know, this fit felt wrong, and so there was discussion and worry about about whether you should do this. And was it the was it because they figured that the universe figured out, and the problem now was people that they couldn't get a handle on them? <laughs> they were finally trying to, you yeah. know, work out the clockwork nature of people's behavior. Yes, which is, I mean, to some extent, that's right. That you know, up and I think the very first census in the in England and Wales was eighteen oh one. Feels quite late, really. That. The, we didn't even know the population. We weren't even trying to count the whole population. And people even were against that. They said, what if the population is lower than we thought and our enemies are encouraged by this? Mm. <laughs> you know, that we haven't got as many strong fighting men as we thought. So they started to do even those basic things like counting people. But then these, these statistical information like, um, you know, who's dying of what diseases, if you have that information, then you then perhaps you can do something about it. And that sort of bumps up against, but God's will is, you know, for these children to be dying of cholera. You know, that's not for us yes. to do anything about. So there were genuine tensions. There's this really amazing letter by Charles Dickens uh, where he sort of says it's really horrifying to think that, you know, if, if fewer than the average number of people have been murdered this year, then by the end of the year, you know, 50 people have to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's... It's it's a really interesting take on this, which we don't kind of think in quite that way now. We're more used to understanding kind of averages and, and you know, yes. a, an average an average does not mean someone has to die. If you if you end the year yeah. below average, that's okay. 
but yeah these thoughts were disturbing for people they really were troubled by them at the time so there's a there's a lot of that discussion in the 19th century happening was it because they figured that the universe figured out and the problem now was people that they couldn't get a handle on them <laughs> they were finally trying to you yeah. know work out the clockwork nature of people's behavior yes which is I mean, to some extent, that's right that, you know, up and I think the very first census in the in England and Wales was 1801. Feels quite late, really, that we didn't even know the population. We weren't even trying to count the whole population. And people even were against that. They said, what if the population's lower than we thought and our enemies are encouraged by this? Mm. <laughs> you know, that we haven't got as many strong fighting men as we thought. So they started to do even those basic things like counting people. But then these these statistical information like, um, you know, who's dying of what diseases, if you have that information, then you then perhaps you can do something about it. And that sort of bumps up against, but God's will is, you know, for these children to be dying of cholera. You know, that's not for us yes. to do anything about. So there were genuine tensions. There's this really amazing letter by Charles Dickens uh, where he sort of says it's really horrifying to think that, you know, if if fewer than the average number of people have been murdered this year, then by the end of the year, you know, 50 people have to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting take on this, which we don't kind of think in quite that way now. We're more used to understanding kind of averages and, and you know, yes. a, an, average, an average does not mean someone has to die. If you, if you end the year yeah. below average, that's okay. But yeah, these thoughts were disturbing for people they really were troubled by them at the time so there's a there's a lot of that discussion in the 19th century happening uh, one bit of the book that i particularly enjoyed was where you analyze maybe the the physics or the physiology of uh giants and <laughs> miniature people mm. so you're looking through gulliver's travels and other books of that ilk had you looked at them like that before when you, you know, you do the sums, can, can a giant exist like that? Have they enough food in that mm. world to feed them? And also I was, cause I always think about this. Like I think about game of Thrones mm. and I go, what are the wildings eating north of the wall? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's the economy of it or what's the economy of star Wars, which is in a way a mathematics, but so you're looking at, are these things physically possible in a number of books? Can you tell me about that? So, in many books, you get giants or you get very large versions of, of creatures, you know, giant birds or, or giant people. But you can also get tiny people like the Lilliputians in Gulliver's Travels. And sometimes the book doesn't give you really very much information. So if you're if you're reading a fairy tale and there's a giant, it doesn't say how big the giant is necessarily. But if you're told information, if you're told how big the giant is or how small the tiny person is, you can then ask yourself mathematically, what are the implications? Because we know in the animal kingdom, big animals and small animals are not just scaled up and down versions of each yeah. other. You know, an elephant is not just a big mass. <laughs> and, and there are reasons for that, mathematical reasons for about the way shrinking and growing can affect, can affect all sorts of things about, about the body. So I was just interested to delve into, can mathematics tell us anything about these situations? Not because I want to say, ha, gotcha, like there's yeah. no such place as Lilith. I, I love you know, yeah, go, going along with them and suspending my disbelief. That's completely fine, but it just very 
interesting to wonder actually what what are the implications of this especially when you know an author like Jonathan Swift is quite happy to do a bit of kind of performative arithmetic as I call it a bit of maths to make it sound like his adventures are more plausible you know I went exactly this many miles to the yeah. east and so many furlongs so he's doing a bit of maths to make his uh, story sound more plausible so I think it's then fair to have a look have a look and see does this hold up um, so with with giants for instance there's this brilliant little rule called the square cube law and um, which actually Galileo was the first person to to observe or write down which says when you when you scale something up um, everything to do with its volume um, if you were to say double it in all dimensions the volume would go up by a factor of eight two cubed because you're doubling the length width and the height so everything there are three lots of twos you have to multiply by but everything to do with area will only increase with the square of the scaling factor. So this is called the square cube law. And that has various implications. So one implication for giants is um, their, their mass, their weight will go up by the cube of whatever scaling factor, but the amount of pressure that, that their bones can sustain, that's to do with the cross-sectional area of their mm. bone, that's only increasing with the square. So the, the mass that they are you know, bearing down on their, on their bones in their legs, um, it's going to rapidly outweigh what those bones can support. And so at some point, I think it's about about a factor of 10 in scaling. The giants like can't even walk around like their bones would break when they tried to move. And so if you it's sort of this paradox that in fiction, giants are incredibly strong. Um, but yeah. actually, they're not. They're 50 foot weaklings. You know, they, they can't walk around very easily. They would be very, very weak. They would hardly be able to support their own body weight. So that's kind of fun. And also, if, if like me, you're a bit anxious around giant insects then it's reassuring because we don't have to worry we're not going to get overrun by giant spiders uh, for there are many reasons why but one of them is about this strength thing that comes from the square cube law so yeah it's kind of interesting to explore those ideas and they're so fundamental because it's it's about dimensions and gravity yeah and yeah. that is like that's not going to change anytime soon <laughs> no <laughs> no exactly so yeah. i mean you can ask you could say, well, what about, you know, could you have on other planets? Could you have something like this? So I do, yeah. you know, briefly think about that in the book because there's a story by Voltaire called Micromega, which is about this giant who lives somewhere near Sirius. Um, and he's something like, gosh, I forget, 120,000 feet tall or something like absolutely ridiculously massive. Um, and I, I wondered, is there any planet where you could yeah. have being that big? But the problem is, uh, in order to have gravity low enough that you wouldn't, you know, collapse under your own weight. The planet would have to be very, very, you know, very low density, but also even the lowest density theoretically possible, um, it would have to be so small, it would be like if if we tried to live on a planet the size of a grape. It just, <laughs> it's just not possible. Yeah. So you can, you know, there are some, you could have bigger creatures than us on other planets with the lower gravity, but there are limits. And uh, yeah, so it's fun to see what they are. And, and part of that fun is in, and I, I know you're you're not like debunking in an I told you so kind of way, but in in stating that kind of stuff, that means that for somebody writing fiction, with obeying those laws doesn't mean you can't do anything. It just means you're going to have giant fleas who can only jump six feet in the air. Like like they have plot implications if you do follow those laws of physics as well. Yeah, absolutely. So th there are a couple of ways around this. Obviously, if you're, you know, at Hogwarts, you just, you know, it's magic. 
So Magic, yeah. actually what you can say is, I don't prove that uh, giant spiders can't exist. I prove that their existence means magic is real. You know, you can look at it from that yes. way. <laughs> yeah. um, so there are ways around this. And of course, in, in fictional worlds, you don't just have to have scaling up or down. So you might think about actually very small creatures are different from very large creatures. They need to be, you know, they, they, they lose heat more quickly, right? So little tiny animals perhaps have more fur, they have more, more fat and so on to be able to survive without getting too cold. They have to eat a lot more frequently. Uh, and so, you know, in your fictional world, if you wanted it to be a bit more realistic, then you could incorporate kind of ideas like that. Uh, so yes, potentially magic is real. Potentially you incorporate those kind of ideas, what the implications of the, the maths are. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, don't, it doesn't have to stop you being creative. You just have to encase them in a shield of unobtainium and yes. it's all good. Well, it's too late. I'll never look at a giant the same way again now. I'll just be pointing it out. I'll be in, I'll be the one in the cinema pointing yes. out the next giant actually, I see. Actually, yeah. the, the square cube law means he couldn't possibly exist and they haven't given an explanation. But but and by the same token, the plot device of a creature that has to eat every 20 minutes in order to in order to keep its body warm is the is a dramatic plot point. Like that's something that's an episode of 24. You know, it's constant, yes. constant tension. While we're in this area, uh, would you be tempted to write fiction yourself? And in doing so, do you think it would that that you'd have to write down the mathematics first that you'd obey? <laughs> here are my equations. Here are my yeah. axioms for this novel. So, well, I I I don't know. I I have always enjoyed. I wrote little stories for my children when they were younger, and we had these you know very long narratives. So there's a big long. Uh, a uh, series of stories involving a pair of naughty squirrels that, uh, you know, who knows, one day I'll be back on your show talking about the, my yeah. squirrels and what they do. So, but actually the kind of stories that I've made up for the children are a bit, they're a bit like, I don't say I'm, li I'm like Lewis Carroll, but the, the, the link to me in my mind is the absurd uh, that you get from following something to its logical conclusion. Yeah. So, you know, if um, if I was a bird who was going to a human school, you know, what would what would it be like? What would be the consequences of that? And you follow those ideas. If you did shrink down small enough to go um, in your friend's pocket. Yeah. What would it be like? What would you be able to do? What would what kind of adventures and escapades could you get up to? So that kind of you, you put yourself in a situation that is that is um, unusual. And then you just play with that idea. And that's a very appealing thing. And that's what Lewis Carroll does in, in Alice in Wonderland. You know, if you could shrink down by drinking a potion, then it would be possible to swim in a lake of your own tears. And that's what she does. And that's quite mathematical, isn't it? I mean, mathematicians do a what if every now and then. I don't know whether it's not proof by induction or I'm not sure what the technical term is. But when faced with, like I always see this with... Um, you know, with complex numbers, which I can never understand, but it turns out that if you you can use complex numbers to to fix a problem, and I always it reminds me of like how do you cross a river? Well, you build an imaginary bridge, and then when you get over to the other side, <laughs> but the bridge is imaginary. But it doesn't matter. You're on the other side. It doesn't matter yeah. that the bridge has disappeared. Uh, <laughs> but so that if you come up with uh, you know, is it in, is it in, uh, Alison Wonder had six impossible things before breakfast, yes. you know, yeah. that, that to go, well, let's forget 
whether it's true or not, what yeah. is the next step in the equation? And then you end up somewhere that goes, oh, actually, the thing I have picked out of thin air could happen because yeah. of the logical steps I took along the way after I imagined it. Yeah, no, exactly. So we, that kind of suspending your disbelief temporarily and imaginary numbers, which are part of complex numbers, that's a great example of that, that, um, uh, you know, when they were first used, they were trying to solve different kinds of equation and you'd be in this situation where you, you, you sort of knew how to solve a quadratic equation, right? And you say to yourself, well, I could solve this if, um, you know, I could take the square root of minus five or something, but obviously I can't, that's impossible. And everyone would, you know, go away and disgust until some mathematician said, actually, well, let's just pretend, as you say, let's imagine that we could take the square root of minus five. Well, it would be uh, square root of five times the square root of minus one, which we also can't do, but let's call the square root of minus one I, like, because it's imaginary. And it turns out, it's very weird, that you can use this square root of minus one that you've just made up, you can use it to solve um, cubic equations, things with like an x cubed in them. Um, you can use it to solve them even when all the, the solutions are real numbers. You can solve those things using these imaginary numbers. You have to use it during the, the technique then they sort of disappear again yeah. and out pop your three real solutions, but you couldn't have got there without yeah. this, as you say, the imaginary yeah. bridge. And you you yeah. look in your hand and it's it's gone. And, yeah. you know, yeah. somebody's saying, you didn't need it. I just gave you confidence or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the special running shoes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that that's... And so we do that a lot. Let's just imagine that we had what we needed. That's another... You do it in mathematical calculations all the time. If you're trying to rearrange some expression, mathematical expression... And you want it to look like this thing at the end. You say, okay, I will I want an X in there, but I haven't got one. So I'm gonna add X and then take it away again. You haven't done anything, but somehow miraculously yes. you've, you've put an you've you've put this thing into the expression, and then sometimes you can play around with it and get the the outcome you want. So that's yeah, just just being willing to jump into the imaginary, which is a yeah. thing that fiction does and that mathematics does. And sometimes, you know, the outcome you get is the solution to a real problem. The, the other the other following along a path thing that we do in mathematics is um, so a proof by contradiction, which is where you say, right, I want to prove that there are um, infinitely many prime numbers, let's say. So I'm going to actually decide that there aren't, that there's a finite list. And then you make some deductions about what would happen. So if you had a finite list, you could multiply all the numbers on that list together and add one. And that new number you've made is one is a, one more than a multiple of all the things you've got, so it can't be divisible by anything on your list. So it, it's it's not it, it hasn't got any factors that you know about. So either there's a new prime number which is a factor of it, or it itself is prime. And but that that can't be right because you had your list. So you you've kind of followed this step by step and realised my assumption that there were only a finite list of primes was wrong. So there are infinitely many primes, and that's. Yeah. Just, beautiful thing so your list of primes never existed like because yeah. you can't do it but you you just follow that that line of consequences which uh, sounds like a, a hercule poirot <laughs> de, denouement where yeah. he's gathered all the suspects in the room and then eliminates them yes but if, let's assume you were the murderer yeah you have done that because you know the yeah. clock was stopped or whatever and gradually comes to the only logical conclusion rather than accusing 
the the main suspect immediately. Uh, yeah. Is there a book that through this, through looking at fiction, uh, particularly, I know there's, by the way, there's for the listeners, this book covers poetry and myth, but I also want them to read it and not to have you do an entire audiobook on the podcast for free. <laughs> but is there a book that you went from zero, either in terms of zero liking it or uh, zero knowing about it to, wow, this book is amazing when looked at, when I, when I learned to look for the things hidden in the in the foliage. Has, has that happened for you in any work of fiction? either yeah. through the writing of this book or over the course of, of a life of reading? So, well, uh, there, were two, there were two books, I think, that I had avoided reading because they sounded like doing homework. And they like the classics, you should have read these, everyone's supposed to have read these, right? So one was Moby Dick and yeah. one was Ulysses. And so I read Moby Dick maybe... 10 years ago for the first time and that was kind of the spur for almost this whole thing really because yeah I had no expectations that it would be so mathematical I had heard someone said there's there's one mathematical reference in it I thought oh well that'll be nice when I get to it but so and I think I was expecting this really real slog yeah just like because a, a, a third of the way through the book, they still haven't, the ship hasn't even left. I know. <laughs> yeah, so you think, well, you know, is this going to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to eat my, my gruel. I'm going to eat my yeah. vegetables. But I loved it. I loved it, you know, right from the start. And it's just full of these really beautiful little mathematical throwaway remarks all the way through that I just, oh, isn't that a lovely, you know, he has this, this metaphor about the rippling waves on the sea, which he compares to infinity and, and adding up an infinite series. And he has all these, oh, just there's so many of them. I can't list them all. Um, it's just full of them. And you can see he really enjoys mathematics. Yeah. So I I raced through, Mo I mean, I love it. I think even, I don't know, you know, I, I realize now why people say it's a classic and yeah. I wish I'd read it sooner. But but yeah, just the, the mathematical ideas in it really added to it for me Ulysses so that even more so perhaps is sort of this forbidding thing that you know you're supposed to have read and then you might dip into it so I, I perhaps when I was about 20 I thought well I'm a I'm a mature adult now <laughs> now is the time I will I yeah and I sort of opened it thought what the hell is going on and closed it again <laughs> but I, I I this time round I thought no I'm, I'm gonna have a look at this and see um, someone had told me that in Finnegan's Wake there's a there's a geometrical drawing, which indeed there is. I have to say, I, I still have not read Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that maybe another time. But Ulysses is, is again, it's fantastic. But what really made me love it even more is that there are these mathematical ideas. And, um, you know, he talks about, Bloom talks about trying to square the circle and he's tried to spend some time doing this. And then there's this whole chapter which is kind of a mathematical almost catechism of, but like crazy, sort of Lewis Carroll-esque kind of, he just goes a bit, you know, he takes these ideas and runs with them and it, it's it's funny and it's silly and it's mathematical and it's lovely. So yeah, that, that's another book that, as you say, I went from zero to love. <laughs> Very good. And maybe an insight into the author that it's one of the author's interests, I yeah. suppose. It's an example of where if you feel a connection with the author, on that one thing 
then that connection helps you through some pages that are a little yeah. more <laughs> obtuse. Yeah, so with both of them, they they clearly enjoyed thinking mathematically and that comes out in their work and sort of reading more about Joyce, you know, and seeing he had these notebooks and he did these little mathematical jottings and little equations that he'd written down kind of to amuse himself really. And that, that of course, that, yeah, that makes, that makes you like him a little bit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing these things for fun. Uh, finally, where to from here? I, I, I feel it's an unfair question to ask somebody who's, who's A, in the middle of publicity for a book and B, just finished the book and would like a rest and would like to think about <laughs> nothing for a while. But in doing in doing this book, and obviously it's an evolution of your of your current job, what do you think? Where are you now, having done it? So I've I've definitely got the writing bug. That would be I really would love to write another book. Um, you know, and we'll we'll see if the publishers let me do it. If everyone who listens to this will buy, you know, twenty five copies for all their yeah. friends. <laughs> but, it's a very high yeah. a very high value crowd listen to this. Small but high value. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, yes. An yeah. intellectual audience, I'm, I'm yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, I, so when I, you know, in my lecturing and, and things, I've talked about the links between mathematics and what we, you know, broadly culture. So I, I'm interested in, you know, the links with music and the links with art and potentially there, there are things I could go down there. And so, you know, you mentioned at the beginning the title Once Upon a Prime for this, you know, you feel like take the rest of the day off, right? So I, I, it popped into my head, if I were to write a book about mathematics and its links with art, I could call it Painting by Numbers. Oh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the title's there. <laughs> I just have to do the small matter of filling in all the pages now. Yeah. <laughs> so front, maybe that's what would be. Front right. cover is but the first page. So, <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. get that done. <laughs> so thank you very much, Sarah Hart, for coming into the function room. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. That was Sarah Hart, Gresham Professor of Geometry at Gresham College. Once Upon a Prime is a book and audiobook available wherever you get books and audiobooks. Speaking of wherever you get, that's it for The Function Room. Wherever you listen to it, do share and rate and spread the word and review. See you next time. Bye bye.